What a great prayer. I um, heard a story this week about a priest at a Catholic school who was trying to help the students understand what proper behavior in church ought to look like. And uh, so he's, he's trying to talk about to, to the kids about, you know, we go to different places, your parents take you to different places, and there's different, you know, types of behavior that should take place. The playground looks different than going to church. And, and so he asked the kids, he said, uh, when you go out to a nice restaurant and your parents give you instructions, what do they say to you? And one little second grader said, well, they say, don't play with your food tonight. Another one said, don't be loud. He looked at another one and said, what do, what do your parents say to you when you go out to a nice restaurant? Oh, he says, they always say, order something cheap. I'm in that, that spot as a parent where you're, you're constantly, you know, with three kids, it's constantly changing. Um, you know, it used to be they could order something cheap. Now the kids' meals don't work for all three at this point. It, this parenting thing, there's always, you're always trying to figure this out and, and how it's different and, and what it looks like and, and how do you do what, you're, what you need to do. One, one of the things you deal with as a parent, you understand this if you have more than one, is sibling rivalry. Everybody who's ever brought a second child home has dealt with this sibling rivalry I, I, from the very beginning. Um, we had some friends who, who brought home the second new baby, and, and first baby was doing great. I mean, they were worried about it, but no, it did absolutely fine. Until about two weeks in, the oldest said, all right, can the baby go home now? Um, can we send the baby back? Um, and that was just the father, uh, not, even, not even the others. But I um, heard another family that dealt with sibling rivalry in, in a little different way. There were... Uh, Brian was the older of two brothers, and his mom said they were having a new baby. And Brian just began to throw a fit. He didn't want a new baby at all, and mom couldn't understand why, because Brian already had a sibling. His brother Damien had been born earlier and didn't understand why it was a problem, because Brian had loved Damien. Everything had gone great, but now this announcement of a new baby, Brian is totally upset by the whole thing. And so finally, after a long conversation, she finally says to him, Brian, help me understand, why don't you want the new baby. And Brian, with big tears in his eyes, said, I really love Damien. I don't want him to go. You see, Brian wasn't worried about being displaced by a little sister. He was afraid they were trading him in like they did their, their Lincoln or something, you know, for another car, and he would lose his brother Damien. Sibling rivalry starts at the beginning. It continues all the way through. If you're a parent of more than one kid, you have heard, well, that's not fair. How come this? How come that? Why do they get this? Why don't I get this? It's all just part of dealing with siblings. The Bible has a whole bunch of siblings in them. Some of the most famous ones are Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Martha, Lazarus, Mary, uh, Jesus and his brothers, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and the list goes on and on. And some of these sibling relationships are good relationships, and a, a good amount of them are not so good relationships. Some of them start off difficult and get a little better as time goes on. But in almost all the relationships of the Bible, this is interesting in these sibling relationships, if you look, in almost all of the relationships of siblings that we see in the Bible, one sibling becomes more prominent than the other. That was certainly true for the two brothers that we look at in our gospel lesson this morning. And I'd invite you to stand and turn to the Gospel of John as we read together John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me that has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from the heavens as dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man of whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, will be, you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified, this is God's chosen one. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus said to them and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, Jesus said, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and he spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. You may be seated. So we're introduced to these two brothers, Andrew and Peter. Andrew is the first disciple that Jesus calls. That's something to think about. Andrew is among the first two, those two with John. Andrew's the one who says, Okay, I'm going to go follow Jesus. You, you think the first would have some great importance, but if you follow through the new rest of the New Testament, Andrew is overshadowed by his brother, Simon Peter. I think it's interesting that Andrew, before he was a disciple of Jesus, was a disciple of John the Baptist, and it tells us a little bit of John's standing in the, in the uh, New Testament world. John had disciples. John had people who followed after him. John had people that were, that were learning from him and learning his teaching. When we, when we think of John the Baptist, so often we concentrate on his strangeness, like his diet of locusts and honey and his wearing skins and living in the desert. But, but John was a prophet. Matthew 3.5 talks about how people went out from Jerusalem and out of Judea, Judea and out of the region of Jordan and, and followed after John, listening to John's teachings. But like Andrew, John's destiny was also to live in the shadow of another. In John's case, it was his younger cousin, Jesus. In fact, John's main role in life ended up being a person who points others to someone who was greater than he. One day, Andrew is nearby. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God. And Andrew decides to leave John and to follow Jesus. Andrew, I'm sure, appreciated all that John had done and all that John had laid out before him. But Andrew traded John for Jesus. John introduced Andrew to the one who was to come. It reminds me of, of a little book, and, and let me just go off the path for a second. It reminds me of a little book written years ago by a pastor who turned comedian. And um, you kind of have to be a comedian to be a pastor many times. And uh, it, it, um, it's a book about, called The Gospel of, of Norton. And uh, you don't need to read it because I'm going to give you the whole thing right here. But um, Norton is this, you know, obviously uh, made-up character who is a disciple of John the Baptist as well, like Andrew. And uh, it tells the story the first time that, that uh, uh, Norton met John about his appearance. He described him wearing a double-breasted camel-haired suit, wrong side out, platform high-top sandals, teased hair, and the works. 
Norton goes on to talk about how this message from John was so captivating that he started to get there early so he could get a front rock seat for the talk every time. I'll just let that sink in for a second. Some of you tell your neighbor later if they didn't get it. So until one afternoon, Norton is listening and he's with John, but it's the afternoon that Jesus comes and John baptizes Jesus. And Norton is taken back by John's response. John says to him, I'm not the one that should baptize you. You should baptize me. I can't even bend over and tie your shoe. And he was amazed by what he saw in John. Norton was curious, and so he heard that Jesus was teaching just up the river a little bit, and so he makes his way up, and he listens to Jesus, and he listens to Jesus, and he realizes Jesus is the Messiah that John has been talking about. And right there, he transfers his membership from John to Jesus. Well, the story goes on, and there's one day the disciples are sitting around, and Jesus says to Norton, hey, have you talked to John lately? And and Norton kind of rolls his eyes, and Jesus looks at him a little strange, and he says, why are you... Why do you roll your eyes? And Norton says, well, you know, John, he's, he's still wearing that double-breasted camel suit and blisters on his throat and eating the honey and all that stuff. And, and Jesus looked at Norton and said, Norton, do you know where you'd be today without John? And Norton bowed his head and he said, well, I'd probably still be stealing fruit hanging around the market. And Jesus said, exactly. In the book, Norton says that taught him one of the most valuable lessons of his life. You see, the guy who wrote this book at the time was a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he saw all kinds of seminarians who would come from from small towns in Kentucky and all around and small churches and and in in places where, where they came and came to the big city to go to school. And they began to study the Word and they began to look at historical things. They began to open up and, and they began to realize, some of them, to say, oh yeah, you know, that third grade Sunday school teacher I had, that was bad theology. Um, oh man, they were wrong. And began to be critical of, of some of the places that they had come from. Even if they were wrong or right, began to be critical of that. And what the professor was trying to get across to his students is where would you be without those people who might not have always done it right, but they brought you to Jesus. They might not have been perfect in how they did it, but, but they introduced you to Jesus the first time. I make that point as kind of a side point for just a moment because some of you have come to our church from all kinds of different backgrounds, and, and you've come from backgrounds where you've been there. You've come from backgrounds that were more legalism than love and more judgment than grace. And gratefully you say, I, I don't want to go back to that. And you've become part of the church and part of the ministry, and God is working in you and through you. But let us not forget... Where would you be without the people who first brought you to Jesus? Where would you be without those folks, wrong or right? Maybe they hit the mark, maybe they missed it, but but somehow they connected you and Jesus. John the Baptist did that. He had his faults. He certainly had a bad fashion sense. But he brought people to Jesus, and Andrew did as well. Andrew was not one of the more prominent disciples. He's better known in the New Testament as Simon Peter's brother. Simon was the rock star. Andrew was the guy who carries the rock star's guitar around. I heard one guy write about his brother. He said this. He says, My brother was the quarterback of the high school football team, editor of the school paper, Joseph in the annual Christmas play, got the prettiest girls, and was the teacher's pet. Maybe some of you had a sibling like that. Andrew was always in Peter's shadow. 
Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle along with James and John. Peter was there. Anytime something significant happened in Jesus' ministry, he was right in the middle of it. It was Peter who decided to walk on water. It was Peter that Jesus said was the rock. And on this rock, Jesus said, I am going to build my church. Andrew, Andrew probably was there for some of those experiences, but he is rarely mentioned. In fact, did you know Andrew is only mentioned 12 times in all of the New Testament, and eight of those 12 times he is called Simon Peter's brother. Andrew only had one gift, at least that's recorded. Andrew brought people to Jesus. In fact, it was he. It was he who, 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 who brought his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. It was he who, when he first began to follow Jesus, the first thing he did, John says, is he went and found his brother. And he said, we have found the Messiah that we have been waiting for. We have found the one we have been looking for, and he is the Christ. And then uh, he says, come and see. And then later in John chapter 6, it is Andrew. It is Andrew who brings Jesus, the boy with the five loaves and the two fishes. And later in chapter 12, it is Andrew who brings to Jesus these Greeks who want to meet Jesus and want to learn about him and want to know him. What a great epitaph on Andrew's tombstone. He brought his brother and others to Jesus. If you come to think about it, that wouldn't be a bad one on ours as well. He or she brought their friends to Jesus. It is akin to John the Baptist. He pointed others to Jesus. What greater compliment could we have as a human being than that? That he or she cared so much about their friends, cared so much about the ones that they loved, they brought them to see Jesus. Now, some of us, I understand, are uncomfortable about bringing people to Jesus, about saying, come and see. It is a fact that almost everybody who is in church today was invited and brought by someone else. Almost everybody, almost all of you were invited and brought by somebody else. But in an incredible irony, we are not that good at doing it. Almost all of us were brought in because somebody cared about us, a parent or someone else or somebody invited us, but we're not that good at doing it. You know, statistics tell us that 80% of the people that we're in relationship with, that we have real relationship with, 80% of them would come if we would invite them. So why do we hesitate? Some of you, some of us, are more comfortable witnessing for Christ with our actions rather than our words. And that is, uh, I get that. That ought to be. We ought to be people of action. It is in how we live that is the authenticity of the words that we speak. In fact, it's far better to, to live well than to be a person who, who witnesses with their words that they're a follower of Jesus and yet you look at their actions and they live a life that does anything but follow, and in fact, maybe even hurts the cause of Christ. But as you leave this house of worship today, I want to I ask you to consider something. In fact, more than that, I want you to begin to prayerfully ask God, is there someone, is there something you can do to point people to Jesus? Is there someone in your life that you began to, begin to think about making that statement, come and see the one I have found who has changed my life. Okay, this is the spot. Let me just, just tell you. Give me, give me 70 seconds here. This is the meddling spot. All right? I'll come back in a second. 
I hear people say all the time, and I don't have anybody in mind, I'm not picking on anybody, but I hear people say all the time, oh, you know, I know Jimmy, Jimmy and I, we go hunting, we go fishing, we do this, or I know Susie, we go quilting, we go, we go do this, man, we, our families camp together, we do this, we do that, I've known them for years. I really don't know if they are a follower of Jesus, though. And I think when I hear that, what? How does that, how does that not come up? How does that not come up in the conversations of our life? How do, you, how do you be a friend with somebody and go camping and hang out with them and do all those things and it not come up that you're a follower of Jesus? Here's what I... Medley time almost over. Here's what I don't want to have happen. I don't want somebody to... I don't ever want to hear a conversation. I don't ever want to hear a conversation that says, Oh, I know that Chad Wilkes. Oh, I ski with him or I've motorcycled with him. Our families hang out together. Um, we do this, we do that. I really don't know if he's a follower of Jesus. I want to live my life so clearly and so plainly that I, can, I don't have to be words. I don't have to, every time I go skiing with somebody on the lift, I don't have to give them the four spiritual laws. But, but I want to live my life so clearly that there is not that conversation that says, I don't know if he goes to church or not. I don't know if he's a follower of Jesus or not. I think you can do it in a lot of ways. You do it by being a good neighbor. You do it by making your actions be ones that lift up and not tear down. You let people observe you in difficult situations. When you walk through the tough places in life, where, where do you go and how do you handle it? You let people watch the integrity of your decisions. You, you might do it by having people observe what you say or you don't say on Facebook or any other place. You might do it by talking in depth with a family member or a friend about your faith and do it in a loving way. You're, Jesus doesn't need a sales representative. He, our call is to just love people and listen and when we're given an opportunity to talk about the difference he's made in our own journey and in our family's journey. Here's an important truth. You don't have to be a superstar to impact the world. Most of us are not superstars. But that doesn't mean we can't make significant impacts in the lives of people and in the kingdom of God. There's an old African-American spiritual written in the early 1800s titled, There is a Balm in Gilead. It was in the hymnal when I was growing up. Maybe anybody remember that song? In Jeremiah 8 in the Old Testament, it asks the question, is there no balm in Gilead? And the, and the idea of it is, is there no healing? Is, is, there, no, is there no one to bring restoration and, and healing? And, and this hymn was, was an answer in the early 1800s of the African-American community. It was an answer to that question. Yes, there is, and it's Jesus. Jesus has come. He is the balm. He is the healer. He's the healer of life, and he's the healer of hearts. And I thought about that song because I think it speaks to the Andrews. The words go like this. It says, Sometimes I feel discouraged and I think my work's in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There's a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. But this is the verse I want you to hear. If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus and say, he died for all. There's a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. 
Andrew couldn't preach like his brother Simon Peter. He couldn't pray like the Apostle Paul. But he could tell people about Jesus. You might not preach like so-and-so. You might not have the gifts of somebody else. But you know what? God would not give you a task without giving you the tools to accomplish it. You have everything you need. Everything you need to fulfill the message God has given you. To live out the difference He's made to you. The, the thing we say is the very foundation of our life. To live that out so clearly and so plainly. That when people look at you, they see day by day more of Jesus. And day by day, day less of you. When's the last time you, like Andrew, said to a friend, Come and see. I was, um, I was so blessed this last Tuesday night to be a part of our church board meeting. Um, let me just say, just briefly, we got a great, we have a great group of leaders in our church who, who love the Lord and love ministry and and take that very seriously. And we we spend um, every board meeting we spend the first probably 30 to 40 minutes doing what I say is the most important part of all of our meetings uh, in prayer together. And we pray for you, and we pray for families, and we pray for our community, and, and we want to lead around that table what it means to be a people of prayer. And, and I was just blessed this Tuesday night as we asked for prayer requests, how many of them, and there were, a, there were quite a number of them, of people who, who talked about a friend, talked about a neighbor, talked about people they're in relationship with, and they're trying to figure out, how do I, how do I tell them, come and see Jesus. They're having conversations with their neighbors, having conversations with their friends, and, and they're trying to live that faith out. And I was, was blessed to hear that as people who are living the life of Andrew. No superstars, no, nobody with any great talents, no offense to those around the table. Um, but just saying, how do, I, how do I live Jesus out in front of the people, and how do I begin to pray for those people that I'm in relationship with and I care about? As the old saying goes, in all your areas of life, preach the love of Jesus. In all your areas of life, not just your church life, in all the areas of your life. And if it's necessary, use your words. May we dedicate our lives to looking more like Andrew kind of Christians. So that when all is said and done and the sentence is written about our life, it might include these words. They showed Father, thank you today for your blessing, for the reminder of your grace, for, for you being a God who knows exactly where we are, and then, for some reason, asks us to be your hands and feet and your representative and your ambassador to the world around us. God, we give you thanks for the people who said, come and see, whether that was uh, our parents who brought us even before we could make decisions or even brought us at times when, when we struggled to even go, but our parents who loved us so much that just stuck with us and, and invested in us until you caught on in our heart, or, or whether that was a friend that invited us, or it was a family member, or it was a spouse. God, thanks for the people who've said to us, come and see. And as we do the same, may we live a life that is so clearly reflective of you that when we say come and see, it has credibility and it has integrity to it that you really are the God who has changed our life. No idea where we'd be without you. And so as we go from this place, may we go with a, with a renewed sense of, of your calling on our life. 
I think so oftentimes we think, when we think about serving you and being your hands and feet, we think about it needs to be some kind of grand and glorious plan, and, and yet then I'm reminded of Andrew, who, whose name barely got mentioned, but did incredible things. Things that we don't even understand now, this side of eternity. And just perhaps you've called us to do some of the same kind of things that are unnoticed by most people, but will have eternal consequences beyond this place and this life. Thanks for your love for us and your investment in us. May we be your hands and feet wherever we go. May joy be ours. And may we point people to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you as you go and in your week.